as we often remark, it is a great blessing to be able to come together to appreciate the blessing of a Sunday morning, the understanding that it's the first day of the week and the things that God has so richly blessed us in days gone by, and also those things to which we look so forward even in the days that are ahead of us. This past week, certainly there was the enjoyment of Thanksgiving and many of the things that go with it. And I thought in light of certain events in the world and certain events in light of our own country in recent weeks and even recent months, it might not be out of order to think about a lesson entitled Noah's Ark and the Titanic. Now, as you can well tell in that title, there are mention of two vessels, ocean-going vessels, one of which, of course, is a prime topic of discussion in the Bible. The other, however, is one of man's design and man's making. And we'll at least give some appreciation today of comparison, if you please, between them. There are aspects of this lesson that are uh, perhaps to be noted in that I preached a sermon about this at some point a few years back. And I thought it might not be, again, inappropriate to rethink about some of it even today. This opening slide is one that is more or less a gentle introduction. Isn't it true that you and I know much about the Titanic? It may well be a matter of some study in history classes. It may be a matter of some reflection in light of, say, the movie, the rather, rather famous Hollywood movie that was made concerning it. And even a number of books have been written about it. But all the while, there are some rather interesting lessons as you compare or contrast it to the nature of the ark that Noah constructed. And so as you conclude that slide with me, we're going to look at a few lessons along the way. But a part of this lesson will in fact begin like this. I'd like to at least use a, the opening statement or two of the lesson to ground us in the historical circumstances because I think that will afford us the best opportunity to then draw the applications a little bit later in the lesson this morning. The historical circumstances were these. As the United States economy was growing by leaps and bounds in the latter part of the 1800s, it was becoming increasingly clear that larger ocean-going vessels were going to be of interest to carry cargo and to carry passengers, and in fact, to take care of the matter of the things that both industry and the people were interested in having. And so as you'll notice on that slide, the White Star Company, in conjunction with the Harlan and Wolf Company, and these were centered, of course, in Western Europe, they began laying the plans for the keel of a very large ocean liner. Now, it would come to be called the Titanic, and they began this effort on the last day in March, 1909. You might want to keep that date in mind in light of what we're going to see shortly. It came to pass that the actual launch date, the time it took to construct the vessel, the time it took to put all the features of it, the ship finally was launched the last day in May, two years later. Now, isn't it interesting in light of all of that? Now you look at some of the details and specifics of it. This ship known as the Titanic, there were other ships that were part of the same family, but this is the one that's of interest to us this morning. It was the most massive ocean-going vessel that had ever been moved to that date. Weighing in at 46,000 tons, you can well appreciate then the massiveness of that structure. It was luxurious, it was extravagant, you may have seen pictures of what the interior portions of it looked like, and 
that movie that, again, was so famous in the latter part, I think, of 1997, 1998, it was such that. It was a good visual representation of what the interior of it looked like. And so the Titanic left Southampton, England, with a desire to cross the English Channel, first of all going to pick up some cargo and passengers in France. This was on the 10th day of April, which was a Wednesday in 1912. The last thing on that slide, in the intent was to again cross back across that channel, make one more pickup in, 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 in Ireland, and then off to New York City, crossing the Atlantic Ocean. 2,240 people were on board. Now the next slide will continue to note this. Four days into the journey. So that now brings us to the 14th of April, 1912, Sunday, interestingly enough. And there were numerous warnings coming across the telegraph about ice, icebergs, if you will, floating in the North Atlantic. In fact, other ships had not only spotted them, but they had issued rather dramatic warnings about not only their existence, but currents were carrying them into the channel that was to be occupied by various ocean-going vessels. It is with that in mind, lookouts. High up above on the mast of the Titanic were keeping watch, but of course, in the eve, with it being dark, you wouldn't be able to see these very well from great distance. Finally, the observation became clear. Iceberg dead ahead. 500 yards is all the distance that was until this iceberg, and from the perspective of physics, we understand well that roughly 90% of the ice is beneath the surface of the water. The part that you see is only about 10% of the iceberg, and so if you're seeing this much, think of the massive amount that's resting beneath the surface of the water. At this point, the warning was quickly given to shift the direction, to turn, if you please, the Titanic, and so the shipmen made the efforts toward that end, and so rather than direct head-on collision... It scraped the side. And as you can see on that slide, it ripped a gash 300 feet long in the hull of the Titanic. At that point, obviously, a great deal of interest began to take place as meetings on board, trying to determine what the course of action needed to be. Isn't it a bit interesting in light of all of those statements? The bulkheads that had been ruptured, five of them, and of that number, it was too many for the Titanic to remain afloat. As you can see on that slide, she broke apart and fell to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean at 2.20 a.m. Monday morning, the 15th of April, 1912. 1,535 people died. To say the very least, it was one of the most notable maritime disasters in history. Now, there certainly have been more people that died, but in terms of the legacy, in terms of what had ultimately come to pass, this surely will occupy a notable place in the history of these, kind, of these sorts of things. It is with all of that in mind, what about a few lessons, or at least observations? Now, I've mentioned some of the details about the Titanic. In Genesis the first book in the Bible, we have much about the ark that Noah constructed. We'll be looking at a few of those verses, but for the first thing we might observe is this. 
think for just a moment about the engineering involved in both the construction of the Titanic and the construction of the ark. On the one hand, the Titanic's dimensions I've listed for your observation on that slide. Some 30 by 3.14 by 5.95. Now again, those were the dimensions that the human family chose in terms of the size and the dimensions and the shape of that boat. What about the shape and the dimensions of Noah's Ark? I've listed them right beneath it. 30 by 5 by 3. It's rather interesting to notice what strong correlation there is at least in them. I might ask, there were lots of engineers who had input into the choice of the Titanic's dimensions. Lots of study, lots of physics, lots of oceanography, and lots of other features about what might be the best and the safest. Now when it comes to Noah's Ark, how did Noah determine the dimensions? How did he know that this size vessel would not only be safe through a storm, but that it would allow all the cargo and all of the things inside to remain secure? Well, you and I know well the answer to that. In Genesis chapter 6, reflect with me on this. God gave Noah the dimensions. Do you remember this with me? God said, make thee an ark. He even told him the lumber to use. It was gopher wood. But he went on to tell him the number of stories and the dimensions. The length, the width, and the height. At that point, isn't it a marvel to appreciate this? In terms of engineering and in terms of anything else that God would ever say, God is always right. His way is absolutely, unquestionably correct. Noah clearly had no great expertise in shipbuilding. And no one else in that day did either, as far as the Bible would indicate. And yet, here was a massive vessel. In fact, the human family didn't build one for millennia that would, that would compare in size to it. And yet, we now appreciate that the size of the, of the Titanic is at least comparable to that in size of the ark. And God gave the instructions and the size measurements for the ark Noah constructed. Perhaps one final thing. Is it that maybe a good reminder for us, not only in present times, but in all the matters of our life, God is always right. It may be that through a proverbial fog, we're not able to see the final outcome of things, and we may not appreciate the fullness that goes with it. But God will always be right in every proclamation He makes. In Genesis 18.25, "...shall not the judge of all the earth do right?" to borrow the wording there that was noted concerning the descendants of Abraham. Furthermore, in Deuteronomy 32.4, the God of heaven is indeed a God of truth. That means He will uphold it and all that He does will be supportive of that truth. Maybe one final matter. As I noted earlier, God was right when He gave the instructions about the dimensions of the ark to Noah. He will always be right in terms of statements He makes about the details of your life or mine. No wonder the psalmist could say in Psalm 19, 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of mine heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. The plea of the psalmist that everything thought and spoken would be consistent with the things of God. May that be our desire and may that be our plea even today. 
In Psalm 55, verse 22, Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. All of us know well that there are times when the winds of life can blow pretty hard against a person's life, bringing challenges and struggles and adversities in varying degrees, and yet God, the text says, will never suffer the righteous to be moved. May we have confidence in that appreciation. It's echoed, of course, in the New Testament in 1 Peter 5, verse number 7. But at least for this point, let's look at lesson number 2. Application concerning not only God's engineering, but the issue of humility. It would seem to me that the record historically of the Titanic affords a beautiful opportunity to think about this. Notice again that Noah, though he had no shipbuilding experience, he nonetheless accepted at face value the instructions that God gave, and he did it. Genesis 6 verse 22 says, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Would it not have been easy to perhaps question, God, this ship is so big, and there's only eight of us. Do we really need a vessel this large? And we're a long way from any body of water. Shouldn't I go and build it near the sea somewhere? Those and a hundred of the questions could easily have been asked. And yet, the Bible affords no question that Noah asked. He simply did that which God commanded. Humility, of course, leads all of us to ponder that, and that takes on this interesting structure. Historically, it would appear that some of those connected with the Titanic were not terribly humble. Let me invite you to note some of those quotations. I stated at the very top, it would appear that there was a bit of a spirit of arrogance in connection to those who not only designed, but actually those who were the ship people related to the Titanic. Consider this statement by Philip Franklin, who was the vice president of the White Star Line, the maker, again, the builder of the Titanic. Stated on the 15th day of April, 1912, remember, the day the Titanic sank, He said, we believe that the boat is unsinkable. They had taken great pains to put enough bulkheads in it. They thought that even if the hull were ruptured, even if there were some crisis aboard water, that the ship would be able at least to stay afloat until it could make land. That was the impression that they had. Not only that, here's another quotation. Another individual made this assertion. It's attributed to the captain of the Titanic. I cannot imagine any condition which would cause a ship, this ship, to founder. I cannot conceive of any vital disaster happening to this vessel. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. Now that clearly was stated before the, before the ship went down. There was an obvious air of expected arrogance, superiority, appreciation and connection to it. Another person made this statement, God Himself could not sink this ship. Now again, all of that happened before the Titanic went down. What about some lessons concerning the matters of pride and arrogance? The Bible is rather uniform, isn't it, in speaking about the matter you and I would call pride. 
the matter that you and I would recognize as arrogance. Proverbs 16 verse 18 says, Pride goeth before a fall. It goes before destruction. It goes before a great abasement, if you please. In Proverbs 29 verse 23, stated yet in slightly different language, but the point is clear that pride or undue exaltation will bring about one's ruin. Maybe one interesting Old Testament example, in addition to this one, could be observed in the book of Obadiah. The only one chapter book in the Old Testament, and yet in that little one chapter book, we well remember that the descendants of Esau were such that they were rather arrogant in that they were thankful to be those who had superiority over the children of Israel. We have the upper hand, they thought, and yet God made a proclamation concerning them. He said, though you in your own mind dwell as the eagles amongst the nests, and you dwell among the cliffs, they thought they were undefeatable. They thought that they were perched in a position to where no enemy could attack them in any successful way. But God said, I will bring you down. And when I do, I will not leave even one grape in the vineyard. Now the point that God made was this. They were aware of the fact that when a person would harvest his or her grapes, anything that was fallen to the ground, obviously they would leave it for the poor and for those that were in need. But God said, I'm not going to leave a single grape. As a description of the completeness of His destruction of the Edomite peoples. Interestingly enough, all those statements in the book of Obadiah came to pass. Doesn't it remind us that though they themselves considered themselves prideful, God did bring them down. Today, you and I might observe what an implication that can be for us. If you and I arrive at the point in life that we think that we are our own self-sufficient ones, that in pride and arrogance we always know what's best, then it's likely we will make a lot of enemies, we will win very few, if any, to Christ, and we will be a thorn in the side of the people of God. We'll be unwilling to be submissive to elders, we'll be unwilling to follow instructions as they're given, and quite likely we will not be subservient to God either. We will exalt our will above His, and no greater disaster can there be than that. The implications for service remind us of the reaction of this, the man called Saul, who later would be called Paul in Acts 9, verse 6. Lord, what will you have me to do? Fully open to any and everything God demanded of him. Aren't we well familiar with the statement in Jeremiah 10, 23? Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Now the people who boarded the Titanic may have felt that the ship was unsinkable. The captain may have felt nothing could cause that boat to founder. They soon learned otherwise. They soon discovered, in fact, great many things different than what that attitude would make reasonable. May you and I never think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. To borrow the words of Psalm 131 verse 1 and Romans 12 verse 3. May I suggest other lessons, though, would quickly follow in line with this. And I've simply entitled it the word fate. 
We understand the word fade and the ideas that go along with it. But consider this, and don't you find it incredibly ironic that here was an incredibly expensive, extravagant, and the finest engineering of the day went into its construction. And yet it sank on its very first voyage. It didn't even make one complete voyage, and it sank. Isn't it interesting to think a little bit about the nature of that fate? For after all, the ark, very much different than this. Noah had no previous experience building an ark, and yet he and his sons and the team that were involved in its construction, they constructed it by way of God's instructions, and it successfully and safely completed the voyage which it was designed to complete. Very different, isn't it? Exceedingly different. It's at this point we might well make a comparison the Bible makes. The church, you see, is likened to the ark. Consider this wording in 1 Peter 3 verse 21. Now, as the Apostle Peter was giving instructions about the nature of faithful living, he reached a point in that discussion when he said, "...the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us." Now that verse began with these three words, the like figure. What was the figure that Peter was referencing? In essence, Peter was saying, don't you know that baptism is like something? Peter, what's it like? The previous three verses tell us. He was talking about the ark of Noah's day. He was talking about that which transpired in Noah's day concerning the construction of the ark and what happened by saving the people who were aboard it and those that were not aborted, of course, were perishing. They, lo- they were lost. The idea that Peter thus describes is the church today, those who are submissive to the Lord, those who devote their lives to His following, they are like those aboard the ark. The like figure, figure whereto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Each and every one who is then baptized into Christ, in the figure are like those who are aboard the ark. They are saved from the difficulties and the terrible onslaught of the devil's arrows and the sin that goes with it. They are aboard the safety of the ark. Sometimes in our prayers, we are thankful unto God for the ark of safety. Again, we know of it as the church, and aren't we honored to be able to be a part of it? Aren't we blessed to be positioned as those faithful in the church of our Lord? Today, though you and I live so many millennia this side of Noah's ark, it is a constant reminder of what happens to those who are not in that ark. Think again about the word fate. What happened to those who were not aboard Noah's ark? Noah was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2 verse 5. For some amount of time while the ark was in construction, he taught and preached and proclaimed and insisted that there was a flood coming. Today, what about the parallel? You and I are in the ark, but we insist, we preach, we talk, we set a life of faithfulness, and we encourage others there is a day of judgment coming. Noah, no doubt, often urged them of his day to be ready for that coming of the flood, to be prepared, and yet they apparently had no interest. 
today, you and I would insist that others be aware of the coming day of judgment, their death or the day of judgment as those things arrive. And yet many have no interest. Their attention is turned elsewhere. But yet the word fade is so apt a description. I would ask you to notice the reading that Brother Dennis read earlier from Hebrews 11, verse number 7. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Now the text says there was a condemnation of the world, but let's... let's Observe the fact they led to their own condemnation by the choice they made. And in that regard, they perished. How tragic it would be to consider the appearance of the day of judgment when an individual who had the opportunity so readily available and chose to turn attention elsewhere. As you close that particular slide... You note this, as far as the church is concerned, there shall be nothing like the Titanic. Jesus said Himself that the church would be safeguarded. It would be handed over to the Father on the day of judgment. You and I thrill at that thought. We look forward to being granted interest to heaven on that occasion. You see, there are people who choose to allow their faith to be shipwrecked. Now notice, it's not the vessel that's the fault. It's those aboard it. They choose to jump ship. They choose to do something else. Didn't Paul say that about some of his contemporaries in 1 Timothy chapter 1? He spoke about these whose faith had been shipwrecked. If you and I choose to apostatize, we too will suffer the same fate that Paul's contemporaries did. How urgent should be our faithfulness. All of our eternity hinges on it. As we close that slide, thinking about the matter in faith, isn't it interesting? Jesus is called the captain of our salvation. He's the captain of this ship. He's the head of it. And it is with that, why don't we draw a conclusion? And we'll also close our lesson. We've looked today at two vessels, the Titanic on the one hand. We've seen the ship of, that Noah constructed on the other And we've used that ship that Noah constructed to remind us about the church. The Titanic sank on its maiden voyage, and it has been a legacy ever since. May I say that the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ prompts and promotes us in the direction of realizing that we've learned this lesson. God's engineering is always right. His design of the church, for example, is perfect, and human hands need not think that they can improve it. God's design of the family is perfect, and humanity need not think that they can improve it. God's organization for various matters in His creation is ideal, and man need not think that he can improve it. So it is that with regard to the ark that Noah built, thus did Noah... According to all that God commanded him, so did he, Genesis 6.22. As we noted, that ark then is reminiscent of the church because the Bible makes that comparison. And today, though this many centuries, this side of the cross we are, we still rely on the captain of our salvation. We still trust the head of the church. And we still submissively and humbly follow him all the days of our life. It might be that in this assembly today, 
that there is someone whose life is not as it ought to be, then may I say, let it not be a matter in pride. Don't remain sitting where you are or standing in position all the while knowing that you need to respond simply because you're not willing to admit mistakes. The first thing that will be required for you and me to be right with God is to repent, and that means we've got to admit we were wrong. To admit that things need to change, that we've made poor decisions, that we've done things or said things or been in places we never should have been. Today, if that would be the circumstances of anyone's life in this assembly, we want you to know that the God of heaven invites, implores, insists that you in humility respond to His invitation call. Today, we'd be honored to assist in whatever way we can. If you have never become a Christian, believe in Jesus, won't you? Fully, wholeheartedly. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be immersed in water for the remission of sins. If you have known that kind of life, you've appreciated the strength and power in it, but you have allowed yourself to wander away due to influences, Ultimately, realize, though, that it was your decision to do this. You can't blame others. You made the choice. And the first step toward recovery, if you please, is admitting that you were wrong. And today, we pray to God on your behalf. If you'll confess and repent of those things, Jesus will forgive them. They'll never be held against you again. You can leave this building today in a position of faithfulness, proverbially at the right hand of Jesus. Today, if we could be of assistance, let not the Titanic be your guide, but what about the ark? Why not being a member of the church? And if we could help you, won't you come while we stand and sing?